we all have these stories in our minds of what's possible. And in my mind, I, you know, I couldn't do it, but I, I proved myself wrong. So it, it gave me that curiosity to see, well, if I was wrong about this, what else was I wrong about? And so one mile led to two, led to three, led to my first marathon. And now it's like, you know, doing hundred mile runs and, um, you know, running until like the longest run I've done was 30 hours of running nonstop, no sleep, um, just running. And so to go from not thinking I could run one mile to hundreds of miles, it's just amazing what our bodies can do when we kind of get out of our heads. Hey guys, don't forget to check out the Street Cop Training Conference April 23rd through the 28th, 2023 at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center. It's going to be a great experience. Five career-changing days. Some of the most profound speakers in the industry. Guest speakers include Rob O'Neill, the guy who killed Bin Laden, Kyle Carpenter, the youngest living Congressional Medal of Honor winner, Fox News host Tommy Lahren, Navy SEAL American war hero Jason Redman, Sheriff David Clark, Sheriff Mark Lamb, and Sheriff Wayne Ivey. You'll also spend time with all of our Street Cop instructors at this event Monday through Friday. We'll have a great lineup of courses in addition to our great speakers. It will be a week that you will not forget. You'll be thankful you came. You don't want to miss out. Check out streetcop.com on how to register. If you're going to use the room code, make sure you book it from Sunday through Friday. That's what the code's good for, and it's about half the price of the regular rate. But those rooms are running out, so make sure you sign up now. We'll see you there. Hey guys, welcome to the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder, and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benito, and we're lucky to have today Katie Spots, who I think a lot of you probably know who she is. And rather than me jumble up her resume of amazingness, I'll let her tell everybody who she is. But you know, thank you so much for being here today. It's so appreciated. And um, your message is going to travel far. And we are supporting the Clean Water Project today. Just so you guys know, I think it's a great cause. Katie Spots, big day for the Street Cop Podcast. Tell us who you are, and yeah. boy, you got a lot to talk about. So uh, thanks again for having me on. I am uh, an endurance athlete, so I do ultra endurance events, um, swimming, biking, running, rowing. Um, one of the biggest challenges was a row for water, becoming the youngest person and uh, youngest person ever and first American to row from Africa to South America. So I was alone for 70 days at sea. And um, all of the challenges have been used as a way to raise funding and awareness for clean water. So there's been different world records, but it's all the same cause. So there's been a run for water, swim for water, bike for water, row for water, um, and the past decade of doing various endurance challenges. And then my day job is, is I'm an officer in the Coast Guard. Oh, no shit. Did you join the Coast Guard after sitting in the ocean for 70 days or was it before that? I joined the Coast Guard after the row across the Atlantic. Um, I did the row in my early 20s and then late 20s joined the Coast Guard. So. Yeah. What was the decision to join the Coast Guard? How did that come about? You're just like, yo, I miss these fucking dolphins. Like, um, I want to get back out here. Well, I'm definitely a person that is very mission driven. And I have always been interested in service and giving back. And I think, I mean, when I first was thinking about it, 
to be honest, the original draw was like, oh, I want to see what boot camp's like. And, and you know, <laughs> I it, wait, did, did you go to Cape May, New Jersey? I did. Yeah. And yeah. So, we're, we're about an hour north of it. Yeah. Um, found out what that was like. And then I um, got picked up for OCS and was in uh, New London doing 17 weeks of, of that training. So um, I was thinking of doing rescue swimming. So I started to train for that. And I found out there were like only four women to do it. So I was very intrigued by that. And once I met the requirements to do it, um, I was, I just realized, oh, I just wanted to know if I could do it. And so, yeah, I, I think the ocean, the mission, rescue swimming, all of those things were kind of what initially drew me in. And um, yeah, I'm really, it's a very rewarding, um, you know, branch to be a part of. And uh, it's definitely, I mean, I'm constantly impressed by the people that I work with and how humble they are and how smart they are and um, down to earth. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? What's the backstory? How did you become a complete psychopath in ultra marathon <laughs> running and fucking rowing boats across the ocean? So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Right now I'm in Portland, Maine. Um, but when I was a kid and even in high school, um, I was more or less a bench warmer. So if you ask any of my sports coaches, they would have never dreamed that I'd be, you know, breaking world records or doing these big big challenges. So the the whole reason I got into endurance was um, in my senior year of high school, I needed to take one gym class to get my high school diploma. And because I was more or less a, a bench warmer in team sports, um, I looked for the easiest class. And, and that class was a running walking class. I was that's interesting. Yeah, I was avoiding it so much that I was trying to see if I could get a doctor's note to say I was fit enough and, um, write a paper about the benefits of physical fitness. I just, I, I was always there, uh, physically, but mentally team sports. I just, they, I got bored. I don't know. It, it never, I never really got into them the same way I got into endurance because I think in team sports, you win, you lose, you tie, but in endurance, you get to discover what is the limit? What is humanly possible? And it's this very, very much this personal journey of you versus you. And, um, and you realize that, you know, you are your greatest limit and you, you see that demonstrated so well in endurance. So I, I signed up for that running walking class, couldn't avoid it. So I was, you know, I was going to put in the bare minimum effort by just walking and, you know, feeling like it was a big waste of my time. But, uh, after two weeks, I was just so bored out of my mind going lap after lap. And that's when I set a target to run one mile. And that was something I'd never done before. Um, certainly not because I, you know, wanted to. Um, so I, you know, I didn't know how to pace myself. I didn't have this Nike moment, but I, I think oftentimes when people describe a one mile run, they always say just, you know, I just ran one mile, but that one mile was just enough for me to discover that like we all have these stories in our minds of what's possible. And in my mind, I, you know, I couldn't do it, but I, I proved myself wrong. So it, it gave me that curiosity to see, well, if I was wrong about this, what else was I wrong about? And so 
one mile led to two, led to three, led to my first marathon. And now it's like, you know, doing hundred mile runs and, um, you know, running until like the longest run I've done was 30 hours of running nonstop, no sleep, um, just running. And so to go from not thinking I could run one mile to hundreds of miles, it's just amazing what our bodies can do when we kind of get out of our heads. And I mean, our bodies are are built to endure. And I mean, if you see someone who's, we, we live to be a hundred years old. So if that doesn't tell you we're, we're built for endurance, I don't know what it is. So it's interesting that I had just, and I'm, I'm late to the party. I just finished David Goggins first book. And that was second one comes out. I'm sure, you know, David running ultra marathons. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm familiar with ultra marathons and how absolutely fucking insane they are. So they are. Yeah. maybe, maybe you can just explain to people because you really lightly touched on it. Let's, 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 uh, without embellishment, why don't you tell people what it's like and unpack a little bit okay. of what it's like to experience an ultra marathon and how absolutely yeah. insane it is and what it does to you physically. I guess the first thing is to break down what an ultra marathon is. So a marathon is 26.2. An ultra is a, the next, you know, distance above that. So the next distance is a 50K. So that's around 31 miles. Um, 31 miles is not the only distance. It could be um, the 50K, um, 50 mile, 100K, 100 mile. And now they're coming out with 200 mile runs. And um, I mean... For the training, it is very similar to the type of training you would do for a marathon with having your your shorter runs during the week and then the bulk of your training happens on that Saturday. But your mind just in one day, you can experience every high, every low. In one moment, you could have this runner's high where you are, you feel like you can go forever. You feel like you're in this flow state, you know, it's effortless, you get the caffeine and the endorphins and you just have that, that lightness. And then, you know, maybe an hour or two hours later, I mean, your legs could feel like bricks. You could be nauseous. Most ultra runners wear shoes that are one size larger because, you know, you get swelling in your feet and your hands. And, um, I mean, there is a science to it. And I've definitely learned what works for my body with nutrition and fueling and pacing. And, um, there are a lot of tricks. Like, I mean, I run with a metronome and that helps me with my, my, the mechanics and keeping my posture and keeping everything, um, in a, in a very comfortable, uh, position. Like most people are probably right leg dominant because they're right-handed and that, might not be an issue if you're doing a 5k, but if you're running for 20 hours and your, your gait and you're favoring one leg, you'll feel it. And you, you know, whether it's your back or your knees. And so there, there's all these little tricks, but I definitely feel like the hardest part is always beginning. And the longer you go, it's just, I don't know. It, it It's, it's super exciting because even if I've run a hundred miles, several times it's you you never know i mean there's a huge amount of respect that goes into our bodies you know doing being able to do it at all so i will never go into a hundred mile race and be like oh i got this because there's so many things that could go wrong 
Um, and, and that's kind of part of the allure and the excitement because it's a huge unknown, but yeah, I mean, if you're an ultra runner or you're probably going to have GI issues, if you haven't figured out the fueling thing that works for you, um, hallucinations, I've had that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I learned by making the mistakes. So I'd have had like rhabdo after one of them, um, Another thing to be like careful for is if you take Tylenol or Advil, you have to be sure you're taking the right one because then there's internal bleeding. There's people who um, hyponatremia, hypernatremia, just the electrolytes really need to get dialed in. Um, Wait, so let me ask you this. I mean, is it the dopamine hit? Like, when does that happen for you? When is that high that you seek over and over again? When does that moment or the multiple moments in that? I mean, you never know. Um, I I do think that there is something in my mind where usually like the first marathon, I'm not that excited about because I already know I could do it. So everything after the marathon is more exciting for me. Yeah, I mean, I just think like the marathon is what I need to do to get to the fun and exciting part. Yeah, I would say the longer I go, usually the more fun and exciting. And it just continues, all those endorphins begin to continue and build and build. And usually with like an ultra event, because those endorphins, because that adrenaline is so high, you know, I don't sleep well right after. And I might not feel the effects of what I just did until to a day later, once that adrenaline and once those endorphins kind of wear off, but yeah, you can not even know really what you're doing until it's, it's done. Before I have more questions of the amazing things you've done. Um, it's just weird that my brain goes through 9,000 thoughts a minute. And I just try to capture a few of my pad here to serve up some, uh, good questions. And I always try to do these interviews a little differently than typically what you've probably been through on the 9,000 other podcasts you've been on. Um, Hearing all this, because people say to me, and believe me, I'm not comparing what I do to what you do, um, but I'm obviously somebody who is busy and busier than most people you meet. So people say, well, what, what do you like to do to relax? What do you do to relax? I mean, I guess. Do you drink I... wine? Do you watch Netflix? Do you go out to dinner? Do you go rollerblading with the hubs? Oh, you tell I... me. I mean, I do rollerblade. That's another... Interesting. How the fuck did I guess that? Nobody rollerblades anymore. My last event was a skate for water, rollerblading. No shit. I just, I didn't know that. So I just guessed that. I'm like, my friends and I, we went across 44 islands from Key Largo to Key West. Why why did I think you may have went to a rink and done 20 laps? You had to skate from here to fucking Zimbabwe. It is, I mean, rollerblading's up there, but I guess I I would like to just put it out there that like, I don't have a high need to relax. I have like, even when I go on vacations, they're usually very active. And one thing I do very much believe is like, um, doing these things sound crazy, but I think the craziest thing is not doing them because if you have the energy to row an ocean, you should probably row an ocean. It's kind of like, I don't know if you have that energy in you, it needs to get out. And so I, I guess, yeah, I, I do relax and it's usually after physical activity, like foam rolling and 
yoga and massage. I definitely love massages and um, yeah, but I, I don't really, I don't have a great need for, I mean, I read books, but like, I'd rather be doing something than sitting around. Yeah, I agree. No, I'm the same I way. Need, Listen, I, I don't need money. In, you know, in in context, it's the same thing. I could tell you stories of I've been on, uh, you know, the destination weddings, and 25 people I know are there, and they're like sitting around the tiki bar. And you know, before I met my, we were dating at the time, my wife and I, and I, and she's like, "Where are you going?" I'm like, "I gotta find a football or something. I gotta find the activities director." Yeah. And I was ended up playing. Like all my friends are like, well, coworkers are all hanging out, and they were cops, obviously, so they're fucking drinking to excess. And and I'm literally found like four kids to play football with. And then people are like, oh, are you going to come hang out with us? I'm like, I can't sit there. Yeah. Right. I just can't do it. And bullshit. I need to, my body requires me to do something. Oh, totally. my mind. Yeah. I mean, as crazy as it sounds like, yeah, it is probably harder for me to relax than it is to like be doing things. And so I do find like a sense of relaxation, even in activity, especially if it's not like, a high intensity, if it's a low intensity workout, I think that could be very relaxing too. Do you think that all this activity that you do uh, has a correlation to your very youthful appearance? Well, I, I mean, I would say that like, okay, so I have done the whole, um, there's like at a human performance lab at Cleveland state, they can do different tests to see what your body age is. And it has been lower, but I do think that no doctor has ever been like, oh, you're going to run 100 miles. That, that sounds great for your body. I do know that, you know, there's risks associated with with what I do, too. So, um, I mean, yes, maybe it is. But I also am, you know, just aware that, um, yeah, that I it, it could be a detriment to my body. I mean, I'm still growing back toenails from my last ultra London. So I'm yeah, it's wild that. stuff, dude. There's always like, something. Do you like trade off like the fact that like obviously you're a female and you're like, well, I run ultra marathon, so boy, I wish I could wear open toed shoes, but I can't. Well, um, there are places where they they have workarounds, like they can glue uh, toenails back on. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually am familiar with this and I can't explain why I'm familiar with this because I will get killed when I get home. Uh, but you can figure out where I was going with that. You said earlier, like everybody should go row the ocean. And, you know, why do you think people don't row the ocean? I know what your answer is going to be, but do you think some of that is a fear of the ocean? And how do you not have fear of the ocean going in in that dinghy? Yeah. And and going out there by yourself. I know that it was a very, very moving experience, but you know, the ocean scares the shit out of me in some sense. Cause yeah. I know that because I know how dangerous it can be. I kind of feel like the reason people don't do things that seem quote unquote hard is because of a failure to recognize that there's something even harder. Meaning, I guess best way for me to describe that is like. If I had two options, I was either going to row the Atlantic or I was going to spend the rest of my life wondering why I didn't. I was going to be an 80-year woman on my deathbed wondering why I didn't live the life I was supposed to, why I didn't do what I was called to do, why I gave in and gave up so early. And that, to me, is the biggest hardship. It's not doing hard things. 
it's being um, weighted down by what you didn't do. And I think if you in your mind could think of that as being the worst thing and the hardest thing, then it makes it easier to make that that hard choice of, of um, you know, doing the thing that is hard, but also doing the thing that um, doesn't leave you with unfulfilled uh, potential and um, unfulfilled dreams. And I mean, I, I still have to, you know, work through and to be able to do any of these challenges to kind of challenge my, my own thoughts around it. And, um, I mean, there is something that like, maybe you really don't want to do it because if you did, you would find a way. So, I mean, there, there's that. And then there's also, if you really wanted to, you probably would. And so, um, I, I, yeah, those are two things that, that I kind of go to that, like, you would find a way if, if you really wanted to otherwise, I, I don't know if that seems like having a lack of empathy, but I've just seen so many people and I feel like everyone has seen the stories and the people that demonstrate so um, powerfully that you can overcome incredible things, not just in endurance, but in all aspects of life. And some of the most admirable people out there that we know of are those people that really just, you know, throughout all setbacks and everything can, can rise and push through. So 70 days on the water, you start out, they're shoving you off. You're like, all right, I'm out. We know the boat doesn't go very fast. You're anticipating being out there for what, three months? Yeah. You know, so you're going, there had to be moments of like, oh shit. So what were some of those oh shit moments out at sea? I had close calls with oncoming freighters. I had a couple fires on. Wow, board. really? I, How did you have fires on board? Um, so I had a little jet boil stove. And the thing about being on that boat is it was so like, unstable. So I would be cooking in my cockpit. I got hit by a wave and it flew right at my shoes. And wow. another fire was an electrical, like a fuse. And yeah, those were the two. Um, I did have about 25 foot waves. Um, that was after two and a half months at sea. So I was so bored by that point that seeing big waves was really exciting. And I, I mean, this was never like I'm conquering nature. If, if, if mother earth, if the ocean wanted to take me, it would. So, um, but having said that I did have a little bit more confidence in my boat and, um, my boat was self-riding. So I felt like I got to experience the full capabilities in my boat that was designed to handle, you know, 20, 30 foot waves. So kind of like, why would you have a fast car and not drive it fast? So were you like, were you saying like when those things are coming along, you're like, Oh my God, what the fuck was I thinking? Yeah. But then I was also very excited. I would say, Oh my God, you're nuts. (laughs) When I was a kid, you know, those wave pools, I don't even know if they still have them. Wait, if I was like four or five, I'd be right at the rope, not able to go any closer, just living my best life. So I've always felt and like growing up, if there was a thunderstorm, we'd be out on the porch, just like, you know, really watching it like it was our favorite movie. I mean, we, I guess I also had a lot of like my, I have older brothers and was all their friends around. So I think um, 
I don't know, that sense of adventure probably got instilled at a young age that seeing nature and seeing that kind of stuff is super exciting. And I am aware of the dangers, but it is also very What do your parents think about you doing this crazy shit? Um, well, my mom is so afraid of, like, she won't even drive on the freeway. So she, <laughs> she, we're very different. My parents, when I decided to do some of these adventures, especially the row, um, they thought it was a phase I was going through and that it would pass. So they didn't think about it much. And then I bought the rowboat and they're like, no, you can't do that. And too late. I already have the boat. So, um, they, I mean, I think like most parents, their number one priority is me being safe. And so this goes against everything that a good parent, you know, should do. And, and so it was, I mean, yeah, I think it was harder to be a parent of someone on an ocean than it was for me because I was so focused in the zone. I And, you know, my my sister said my mom would be clicking refresh on my little tracker just to make sure I was moving. And I mean, just sitting at home worrying is not I'm, I, I can't imagine that being an easy thing. But um, yeah, they're as supportive as you can be be um and they were there at pretty much all my my bigger events so it's to the point now where you know if i'm doing an iron man they're like great there's medical people there but if i started by doing an iron man they'd be freaking out so i think they're they'd be surprised if i wasn't doing you know these types of just imagine what it's like being your mom the torture you must put her through and, and the fact that you probably relish in it you probably love it because nothing better than breaking your mother's balls oh i just so i had acl surgery and i was doing this type of therapy um blood flow like it, it's blood flow restrictions they instead of adding extra weight they'll um you'll use this thing so it restricts your blood flow and one of my legs it was like a week after surgery and they were doing this type of therapy and uh what I, they were doing on one of my legs so it looked like red and so i sent a picture to my mom i'm like they have to eat <laughs> and she, she was freaking out she totally believed it so i you know i i'm sorry mom i would love to watch the interactions of you and your mother i bet you it's hysterical did you guys ever have like a rescue plan in place where you're out floating around the middle of goddamn nowhere yeah so i had a team on shore um and i worked with the weather guy and i had the e-perb or the emergency beacon but i kind of had this like understanding that because there was no follow boat um it could be over 24 hours that i could get rescued so um you know if it was like this immediate thing it i you know, it was kind of like I was either going to make it or I was going to die, like in in certain, you know, situations. But that was another incentive. You know, it might seem like it'd be you know, better or easier to have that follow boat. But if I knew that I could quit immediately, maybe I would have the fact that I would have to wait 24 hours. And I, I mentioned it earlier about like how running you could go from that high to low. Sometimes when I felt like hitting that button and calling for help, I was like, well, in 24 hours, I probably will change my mind by then because of how um, your mind just, you know, it's the highest highs, the lowest lows. There's no one there to kind of buffer that. And 
I did have email. I did have some things, but it was spotty and um, it was like a dollar fifty a minute on the satellite phone. So it wasn't like something I was relying on for much. So did you call your mother when you were adrift to the ocean? Like, hey, what you what are you guys cooking? Um, I I definitely remember calling my brother. Uh I called some friends. I definitely emailed my mom. I intentionally didn't try to talk to my parents too much because I didn't want them to worry and I feel like there were only certain people during the journey that knew if it was hard or knew, um, you know, if, if I was worn out because my, I didn't, yeah, I didn't want my parents to be more worried about it. And so it was hard for me to be like, yeah, everything's great. So a part of me wanted to protect them by not being like, you know, this is so hard. And my mom's way of like showing support and being loving is, is like, she wrote a hundred letters for every day. So every day I could open one on my boat. And one of the themes that, you know, she would share is like, we'll still love you if you quit. And I was like, well, yeah, but I don't want to quit. So I don't want to read that. And so, yeah, you can be in a kind of delicate space of knowing what you really need to hear in those hard moments. And it's usually like, yeah, I know this is hard, but it won't be hard forever. And yeah, I know this is hard because it is hard. And yeah, I know this is hard, but you've come so far. And so those are kind of, yeah, I I knew if I called my parents when I was in a rough shape, they'd probably be like, come home now. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. Just want to vent. You know, people are maybe unaware of this, but I just know this from like, cause I watch weird shit on TV when I do watch TV, but like people have died in the past doing this, right? Yeah. Um, so it has gained some popularity with these um, races. So there are, I mean, I know that, that the decision to do this took a lot of fundraising and the goal was to raise money for charity, but there are races with follow boats that you can pay uh, like a couple, like maybe it's like $20,000 or something ridiculous. And to me, I wanted to make sure as much money was going to the clean water charity. So it was never really something I wanted to pursue, but that is something that is, you know, helping, I guess with that. But at the time that I did it, half of the people who attempted a solo row didn't make it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they died, but. But people have died. People have died doing this. Yeah. Angela Madsen, she is the last American that I uh, heard about passing away because I did training out on the Pacific with her. So she's doing, she did the Atlantic and she passed within the last couple of years trying to do the Pacific solo. So it does. Do they know what happened there? Is just hit like a, uh, like weather or. I don't think they, they really knew what had happened. I mean, one of the things is you do have to scrub the barnacles off the side of your boat. So that's the only time you technically need to be in the water. And sometimes, I mean, you're tethered to the boat, but it could be hard to get back in the boat, especially. So, you know, and I mean, depending on how vigilant you are about always being tethered to the boat, if you're not, if yeah, there's once you're detached from the boat, it's kind of like game over. Um, That's it, man. That's wild. Do you feel differently about the ocean now? Are you like really comfortable with it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's very calming, um, but it's kind of the same feeling I have about like endurance. There's still a lot of respect. And so, um, yeah, I feel like still pretty alert, like it, it, especially if I'm on water, but it does feel like calming and kind of like where I'm supposed to be. And, um, it's so beautiful and I, yeah, I love, I love water. Now, I know the Coast Guard Academy is our uh, boot camp is, is pretty difficult. Did you just like whoop its ass? Not at all. Like I, since we were packed like sardines, we were all so sick. I mean, disgustingly sick. And I would have to go to the ward every night um, because I had bruised ribs um, because of coughing so hard. And then also because of screaming so loud that's a part of it and so when I did my fitness test my fitness actually declined because of you know waking up in the middle of the night for uh fire drills and um just yeah different food different um germs and so uh it definitely you know put me in my place and was was a challenge for me but uh yeah I still I still I'm glad to have gotten through it. And it's just, it's a different world. It's, it's wild. If I like look back and they, they, there's certain little videos that, that we had made during it and just the shenanigans that you're put through. It's pretty funny now, but um, yeah, there were definitely days where I was like, what did I get myself into? Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard, people don't, I don't know if people realize it, but the, uh, it is, it is, uh, they compare it similar to the Marine Corps boot camp, right? It's very difficult. Yeah. So, um, the Marines is the most physical, but the Coast Guard has a lot of, um, expectations on like memorizing and it was, it was nuts. But yeah. What do you do in the Coast Guard now? And then I want to go back to, I have a few more questions about the boat and shit. So right now I'm a logistics officer at sector Northern New England. So I was able to have both the experience of being enlisted and officer. And uh, before this, I was stationed in Station Buffalo at a small boat station. Let's go back to this boat thing. Let's go to the to the end of your adventure across the Atlantic. So what's that like knowing you're getting close? Or let's talk about what time of day did you pull into port? Who was waiting for you? And what did that feel like? Um, I actually was supposed to land in Cayenne in French Guiana. And because of those 20, 25 foot waves, I realized that I would need a boat to tow me in. Otherwise I'd be crashing into anything. And so I didn't want to go thousands of miles and then have some boat tow me in. I wanted it to be completely unsupported. And so the weather guy and I decided to row two countries west, add another 400 more miles. Wow. And that could have added two more weeks. And so I already had estimated it was going to be 70 to 100 days. And this was at day 62. So um, it's just weird. Like the only form of like isolation would be like you were in, um, isolation being in jail like you would be completely separated and that's like the worst form of punishment and what happens is like when you get your freedom back when you get back it's almost like 
you have your whole universe and you whole like you feel like you can control this whole little universe and so even when I was about to reach land I'm like I'm no I'm not ready I'm not ready I I don't know if I like it was it was wow even overwhelming because I remember reaching land and just seeing new shapes and new colors and smells just felt so overpowering and like I remember the first time grocery shopping and being like I when I was out there I made every decision I made what I was doing what I was wearing what I was listening to I didn't I mean there was this total freedom from decisions for months and so even decision making was like it took me a long time but when I reached land probably the feeling was like I was winning an Emmy, completing a marathon and being released out of solitary confinement. Those three very intense things. The tourism department of Guyana um, invited and had this big celebration. So there were hundreds of people there. They That's had, cool. Yeah, they had a bunch of watermelon out. And I was like, how did you guys know? And they're like, you tweeted about it every other day. <laughs> she wanted that watermelon. And so they, the tourism department really went above and beyond they took us on like a private plane to Kaitra Falls which is the largest single drop waterfall and got to you know go through the rainforest and had a couple days to chill and then it was off to complete being completely alone to being in front of millions so it was really a good opportunity to highlight the cause and so you know it was being on Anderson Cooper, Diane Sawyer, NPR, Discovery Channel, all the the major um, networks. And as a result of that, over $100,000 was raised um, through all of the adventures. About 46,000 people have gained access to clean water. So that's in Africa, South and Central America, throughout Asia and India. And so, I mean, adventures last 70 days, but their impact can last a lifetime. So that's really what it's all about. I mean, I know you can fly. I know you can take, you know, you don't need to be uh, rowing or biking, but it's just really about what what happens because of it. And um, it's just been really humbling to see how many people have gotten involved and and said, yeah, of course, I believe in a world where everyone gets clean drinking water. And um, that's really the motivation. And I mean, if I was just doing it for my ego, I probably would quit. But like, I think I knowing your strong why, I think helps you figure out how and as long as you have a strong why, that's really what's important. And I think in those moments where I did feel like quitting in those moments where I was like, what did I get myself into knowing that, you know, it actually has a purpose beyond myself is 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 huge. So Water has been the the big, you know, the big mission. This is my last question. And I'm going to try to work your mother into this a little bit. <laughs> What's the next thing you're going to do to break your mother's balls and put her halfway into the fucking grave? Um, Have you so, thought about that yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always, I daydream a lot. I, I wonder a lot. I'm very curious. And so the reason for rowing across the Atlantic from mainland to mainland, most people who row the ocean, do it from island to island. But um, I think it'd be really cool to do an around the world journey by human power alone. And so the next leg would be cycling about 8,000 miles from South to Central America. Okay. Yeah, that's, I figured you're going to say something absolutely ridiculous. 
And when I watch you do it, I'm going to go, you know, I met that girl. <laughs> I'm going to tell my kids, I know, I know that girl. I met her. If I saw her in real life, she'd probably never remember me. It's, it's cool. You know, it's like, it's so cool to meet somebody who just has something different than other people and has enough humility where you pretend like you don't, but you do. And there's no fooling it. And I guess we all have our different strengths and weaknesses. Um, but you are an example. I'm sure we can go on for hours and hours and hours of where it all comes from. Uh, but you are an example of humanity that's finest and certainly somebody who uh, likes a challenge. That is for sure. So I appreciate that about you. And it's so fucking cool to meet you. And uh, let's plug the water stuff again. Yeah. So um, right now we are looking to fund a water project in Peru to help 735 people. And so um, to donate, if you go to katiespots.com, um, there's a donate link for uh, the charity One Drop Matters. It's cool, man. Hey, this was awesome meeting you. And I hope you have a great holiday. If you ever need anything from us, honestly, no bullshit. Um, you know, we, we don't say that because we want to try to get something from you. It's just how we do things, you know, and and I won't call on you for favors unless, I don't know, I need somebody to help explain to me how I'm going to navigate across a lake or maybe something you. like that. I yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm going to keep that in mind. So if I need yeah. something, that, if you <laughs> I'm going to give you a show. need some tips, that's what I, you know. Every day of my life, I have ridiculous ideas and you are experiencing one of them right now. And for some odd reason, they fucking work. And if you actually get to know me, you'd be like, how is this guy doing these things? Um, and I ask myself that often at times of I was literally the person you would never imagine in a million years. I'd be doing the things that I'm doing. And uh, it's awesome to, you know, at some level, we're cut from the same cloth, same brain. I've I've realized that. But uh, I'm not even comparing. You're just better than I am. Let's face facts. I'm just going to submit to that. So listen, happy holidays. It was so good meeting you. It really was. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then... You could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher. So you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum, going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.